Romans chapter 5, we are looking today at verse 12 through 21, back in the great book of Romans. When you're there, say amen. All right, evidently nobody's looking it up. <laughs> when you're there, say, I'm there. There we go. All right, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. And it says this, follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, and the, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Woo! That's a lot. Pray for me this morning. I want to preach to you on these verses, and I'm going to, I'm going to title my sermon, How Death is Defeated. All right, let's pray and get into it. Father, we thank you for this. We ask that you would help us as we study this rich thick passage. God, give us the grace to understand this and apply it to our lives. Help me to speak your truth, not my own ideas, that you would apply this to us, open our hearts to receive it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What would you do with a thousand extra dollars? Shop. What would you do with a million extra dollars? All right, this, is, this, is, this, would be, this would be amazing. What would you do with a billion extra dollars? Can you even fathom? What would you do with a few billion dollars? You know what's interesting about today's billionaires is that they are spending their wealth on various investments that would allow them to add just a few years to their life. I guess when you have everything, 
You try to spend your money to get the one thing that you can't have, and that is life extension. Jeff Bezos, the billionaire uh, CEO of Facebook, and Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal, also a billionaire, have both invested in a company called Unity Biotechnology, which has the mission, quote, to extend the human health span. I read an article on this, and the article began, if you can't defeat death, what if you could postpone it? It's interesting that even today's billionaires can't escape the one thing that's coming to all of us. That is the end of their life, death. Now you too want to defeat death. Now, maybe you wouldn't say that. Maybe you are logical enough to never even say, I I hope to defeat death. Uh, uh, It's outside of your reach. You're more of a realist than that. You are not deranged enough to believe that you could live forever and find the fountain of youth. But don't you at least have this sense in which you should live isn't there a sense in which you, you want to at least live a life that, uh, that means something and to not fade into obscurity? You're more valuable than being forgotten. And you will be forgotten. I wonder how many of you could name all four of your biological grandparents. Now, we all have four biological grandparents. It's just the way science works, all right? I wonder if you could name four, all four of your biological grandparents. I wonder how many of you could name all eight of your biological great-grandparents. Can anybody do that? Name all eight of your great... Wait a second. We're talking about four generations removed. Four generations. Your great-grandparent that you can't name probably thought about you a whole lot more than you ever think about them. Four generations removed, and I can't even name my great-grandparents. Think about that. In four or five generations, not only will the world have forgotten me, but my own family line will not even know my name. That's humbling thought. Like death is actually final, and we are no longer here. We're studying the book of Romans, and like I said, it's been three weeks since I've been here, so that means it's been three weeks since I've preached in Romans. And so let me just give you a quick recap. In Romans chapter 5, the previous verses that we looked at, what we saw 
was that Jesus died for us. All right? We saw that Jesus died in verse, chapter 5, verse 6, while we were weak and helpless. Chapter 5, verse 8, while we were, were, were guilty sinners. Chapter 5, verse 10, God's, he died for us while we were God's rebellious enemies. Now, why does this matter? It's because if we don't get this thing figured out, we're in a whole lot more trouble than just being forgotten by society. Our problem is far worse than the fact that we aren't going to live some kind of life that will be remembered. But according to the Bible, we are already in our sin, if you don't know Jesus, we are born, all right, everybody, spiritually dead. That means the very most vital part of, of us, the ability to know and love God, is dead. And if that doesn't change, when we physically die, we enter into what the Bible calls eternal death, which is under the judgment of God forever and ever. And so what we're seeing in Romans is how God spiritually makes us alive in Christ and changes the whole thing and reverses death and brings us not into eternal death, but into eternal life. And so we saw at the beginning of chapter 5 that Jesus is able to be the one that saves us and represents us. In, in verses 12 through 21, it's as if the apostle Paul steps back and says, to the Spirit of God, let me show you how this works. Meaning, how is it possible that one man could die for all? How is it possible that Jesus could be a substitute for all? How is it possible that the death and then the resurrection of one could somehow bring resurrection to all of us? He tells us in verses 12 through 21, which is why it's a very confusing passage, but also extremely rich and deep and beautiful and wonderful. It's like gold mining, all right? So let's get into it. How Jesus defeats death. And what we discover here, by the way, is going to give you something that is actually better than being a billionaire. If you rightly understand what we're talking about here, and if you were to walk out here and you were to be offered, hey, you could become a billionaire today and not have God. Or you can forsake all of those billions of dollars and you can have what Joel just talked about today. Which would you take? If you hear what we're saying today through the Spirit of God, a hundred times out of a hundred times, you would take God and what he offers you here in this text over everything the world can give you. So are you with me? This is very important stuff. All right, so first Paul in these verses takes us back to Adam. Anybody know who Adam was? If your name is Adam, we're not talking about you today, all right? When I talk about in Adam, don't get all like self-conscious like, me? <laughs> 
No, the first human being was named Adam. God created a human being all the way back. Somebody said recently, in, uh, uh, yesterday in a documentary I was watching, they said, they said when, when you hit a, hit a dead end, go back to the beginning. That's kind of what's happening here. The dead end is the end of life. What do we do? Paul goes back to the beginning and he says, let's start with Adam. In Genesis, God made the first human being and he made a covenant, everybody say covenant, with Adam. And in the covenant, there was blessings and curses. The blessing was you live with God forever, enjoying his presence, eating of the wonderful fruit, uh, fruit of the trees, living in this garden, having dominion over the world, being royalty, being a king over this society, over your body, over the flesh, over your, your desires. You rule and you reign with God. But there's a curse that came with one action, and that was this. If you eat of the tree, you will die. Adam ate of that tree, and Adam died. Not immediately physical death, it was spiritual death at first, and then his, his physical death followed, and then we have all been dying ever since then. Now, how does Adam, how does Adam, the first man, relate to those in West Baltimore? Well, the answer is he relates to us in the same way as he relates to those in Wisconsin. And in the same way as he relates to those in New York. In the same way as he relates to those in London. In the same way as he relates to those in Nigeria. In the same way he relates to those who lived a thousand years ago. In the same way he relates to those who will live in a thousand years from now. Meaning Adam relates to every single human being in this way. That Adam is the representative for the entire race. Five times in this passage, we are told that one sin, and that was eating of the fruit, one sin affected the whole human race. In verse 15, many died because of one man's trespass. Verse 16, one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, one man's trespass. Verse 18, one trespass. Verse 19, one man's disobedience made many sinners. One sin changed everything. And so our problem, then, is that death reigns. So as we get into the text, look at verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For, verse 13, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, these verses feel a bit confusing. But basically what he's saying is, is with or without the law of Moses, sin has been reigning. It was in the world before the law was given, and we're going to see later in verse 20 that the law hasn't helped it. Sin has been reigning. Now, as a result of sin, what we see is death. Everybody say, death. Death. Listen, we think of death as a natural process. You know, everything dies. It's part of science. 
But here we are told something that really is pretty interesting. It hasn't always been like that. Death actually entered the human race at a certain point. And that was when sin entered the human race. Sin came to the race through Adam and death through sin. When it says death here in verse 12, he's not just referring to physical death, but for the Jew and for the Bible, death was death, like death, death, all right? It's what we might call eternal death, meaning it is the end. It is the final judgment, and the Bible tells us that this judgment continues on for all of eternity. When he's talking about death here, death entered the world, he's talking about eternal death. We also know that because in verse 21, he contrasts this with eternal life. So through Adam, we all die, and that death is eternal. Now, first, as we're doing our theology here, we need to wrap our minds around the fact that one represents all. For example, if the President of the United States were to enter into some kind of peace treaty with a country, and then he bombed that country, he's bringing reproach upon the whole country, our country. Does that make sense? Now, the whole United States is responsible for breaking our treaty. So we still see this in some ways today. One represents all. But for God, this is not just mere politics, but God has actually wired humanity with one representative head, and his name was Adam. Meaning, you die, you will die, not for your own individual sin. You have them. We've covered that already all through the first part of Romans. But you will die because of Adam's sin. This is original death. And we are born with Adam as our head. And you might say, well, that's not fair. Okay. But, but understand this. This is also the very mechanism that God gave us so that he might save people. He's explaining not just how we die, but he's explaining how one can represent all in salvation. You see? So if that's not fair, well, then that's not fair. But if we're going to delightfully embrace salvation, we need to also understand the way God sees us in Adam and why we die. And by the way, we also sin, and we'll talk about that. Also, look at verse 14. You see that word type. Another little, little word for us to remember. Everybody say type. Everybody say type. Type. Type in the Bible means a pattern of something. A pattern with a greater fulfillment. So, for example, you might remember uh, God gave a promise to David that he's going to have a son. And if you know anything about the way the Bible works, son is a big word in the Bible. There's a son that's going to be born. Hint, hint, hint. Who's the son? There we go. Well, David had a son, and that was a fulfillment of that promise. But that son was really a, say the word, a type. Come on, somebody other than one of our elders. That son was a 
type of the greater fulfillment, the greater son that is to come. A pattern with a greater fulfillment. That's what a type is. Adam is a type of Christ. We're told this right here. We see Adam and we see a representative for all people. And he's a type of a greater fulfillment that is to come. So then what Paul does through the rest of this passage, verse 15 through 21, is Paul compares Adam with Jesus. And what I want you to see as we walk through these comparisons is this. Since Adam represents us in sin and death, Jesus represents us in righteousness and life. That's what Paul's saying. Since Adam had represented us in sin and death, Jesus now represents us in righteousness and in life. But first, let's look at Adam. We have two representatives. And everybody here, by the way, everybody in this room is represented and will eternally be represented by one or the other. In Adam or in Christ. We're going to hold off on the good news. Let's look at Adam, all right? If you are in Adam, if you are represented by Adam, are you ready? Number one, death reigns in your life. In Adam, death reigns in your life. We're told this twice. In verse 14, we see these two words, death reigns. In verse 17, we're told again, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Do you remember back in the day when you were a kid and you would drive by a cemetery and hold your breath? I don't know why we did that. I did that growing up. My girls did that when they were growing up, when they were little. I remember driving up Sinclair Lane in Baltimore past the, uh, the Baltimore Cemetery. And we turned right on Sinclair Lane, you know, coming from like North Avenue uh, or whatever that road, Bel Air Road. Turn right on Sinclair Lane and I'm like, all right, girls, hold your breath. And they don't know how big this cemetery is, you know, and they're like. <gasps> we get about like halfway down, down Sinclair Lane past the cemetery and they're like <gasps> gasping for air. And I found it funny that I almost killed my daughters over a joke. Uh, just kidding. And one of them said, one of them said, what happens when we run out of space? Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that the world is filled with cemeteries. It's true. We just bury people on top of people. Why? It's because of these two words. Listen to this. Death reigns. Now, I know that we don't like to talk about death and think about it. I know that's not the first thing you want on your mind as you come to church on Sunday mornings. Let's just think about how brief our life is and how you will be quickly forgotten. Let's think about how final death is. But we need to think about it. Why? It's because death, death reigns in Adam. Even billionaires can't escape it. The whole human race in Adam dies. Paul tells us this clearly in 1 Corinthians. He simply says, in Adam, all die. Death reigns. 
in Adam. You cannot escape it. Secondly, even worse. Secondly, in Adam, sin reigns in your life. Sin reigns. Look at verse 20. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Now he's turning back here to Moses. He briefly introduced us to Moses as he was talking about the law in verse 12. He's at the end of our passage going back to Moses and he's saying, hey, let's talk about the law a little bit. Uh, You see, in, in Judaism of his day, there was a popular slogan that went, the more law, the more life. But Paul is saying, it hasn't really worked out like that, has it? The law hasn't actually brought us life, but actually all of the commands of God and all of His rules have actually increased our sin. Meaning we didn't even know how sinful we were until God said, do not covet. And all of a sudden you see sin all over the place. The law increased sin. The law reigns in our life. For example, let's just say that I eat a Frosty from Wendy's every day, all right? I don't realize how much I am addicted to Wendy's Frosties, how much a Wendy's Frosty reigns in my life. I don't realize that. I say, oh, I can stop eating Frosties anytime. I don't need a Frosty. I just like Frosties. And then I join Jess's Nutrition Challenge, and I'm told, no more Frosties. <laughs> and a day goes by, and another day goes by, and I, and, and I, 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 I find myself with, a, with my hoodie on at 95 degrees, my hoodie's on, <laughs> all incognito, looking around at 10 p.m. right down there at the end of Druid, uh, Druid Hill or McCullough Street, wherever the Wendy's is, (laughs) making sure Jess isn't watching, ordering a Frosty. You see, it's not until the law comes and we can't stop sinning that we realize how much sin reigns in our life. You know, I've told you guys this before, a great way to test this is to just tell yourself, I'm going to stop this particular sin and see how that goes. In Adam, sin has a powerful hold in our life. Not only that, but sin reigns in our life. Sin has dominion in our life. Out of billions of people in this world, it is really interesting to know that there is nobody that is sinless walking this planet today. At least somebody ought to be able to do it. But no, we are all in Adam. Therefore, sin reigns in us. Now, you guys probably don't know Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck joke. Some of you might. Um, like, you might be a redneck if you find yourself in Walmart, Walmart 40 hours a week, but you don't work there. I'm going to come up with my own you might be quote, all right? You might be in Adam if sin reigns in your life. This is a test for us. Am I in Adam or am I in Christ? You might be in Adam if sin is reigning in 
your life. Yes, Christians still sin. I sin. I often have to apologize for maybe the way I spoke or a joke that I made or confessing my sins to God for something that only God knows, maybe lusting or coveting or greed. Christians still sin. But listen, Christians are no longer under the power of sin. We're not. We are not under sin's sway. We are not under, as believers in Christ, the dominion of sin. If you are in Adam, however, sin reigns in your life. Meaning you continue every day to choose that sin over and over and over. You are not in Christ, you are in Adam. At least you sure look like you are in Adam. Does sin have a powerful hold on your life? It's time at some point for us to fall on our knees and beg God, show me something here. If I am in Christ, why does sin reign in my life? Has the reign of sin lost its power in your life? When you sin, do you feel a kind of conviction that leads you away from that sin? That leads you to choose something different? Or do you live not to please God, but you live ultimately to please self? You live not to worship God, but you live to worship self. The conviction that you feel is nothing more than a man-centered kind of guilt. And if you could get away with it, and if nobody would know, and if it wouldn't affect your job, you would continue on in sin forever and ever and ever because you love it. Well, if that is you, friend, you are in Adam. In Adam, sin reigns. And because sin reigns, death, not just physical death, but eternal death, reigns in Adam. Now, the main character, however, of this passage is not Adam, but it's Jesus. The main theme is not sin and death. But the main theme is salvation and life. So, in Adam all die, but what about Jesus? You ready to get to the good news? Anybody? In Christ. In Christ. What do we see? We get into these five comparisons. Verse 15 is the first one. Look at it. He says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Meaning what we're going to talk about in Christ is totally different than what Adam brought to us. Meaning sin came through a human, but the free gift comes from God. Sin, uh, uh, sin brought death, but the free gift brings life. The curse of Adam can be reversed, but the free gift cannot be reversed. I could go on, but there are many ways in which what we are about to talk about in Christ is not like the trespass. 
Paul continues then with these five contrasts between Adam and Jesus. Number one, in Christ, grace triumphs. In Christ, grace triumphs. I don't know why I have trouble saying the word triumphs. Let somebody say amen, because it does. Verse 15 continues, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, meaning how much more, if this, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Abounded. What a word. The free gift and grace of God abounded. That word abounded means overflowing. It means abundance. It means to be richly clothed and furnished. It means overflowing grace. If you're thirsty, I mean, you are thirsty, thirsty, all right? You are just, you feel like, man, if I go another couple hours, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And you find a gallon of fresh, cool water, and you open that thing up, and you just start chugging it like this, and all the water is flowing into your mouth. What's going to happen? It ain't all going in your mouth, is it? It's running down your chin, and your shirt is getting drenched, and that is a good sign, because that means that you now have more water than you need. Check it out. Abounding in grace, overflowing grace means that we got more grace than we need. Meaning, when we put our mouth up to this stream of water, we are overflowing with God's provision. God covers our sins and more with His grace. A couple hundred years ago, Richard Sibbs, a pastor, he put it this way. He said, more, there is more grace in Christ than sin in you. As we jump down to the contrast in verse 20 and 21, we see that law and Jesus are contrasted, uh, contrasted as well. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded. There's the word again, abounded. When the law caused us to see how great of a sinner we were, grace overflowed even more. So that as death reigned, grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? Where sin once reigned, grace overflowed. Verse 17 simply calls this an abundance of grace. You know that you are a Christian when you trip and you fall into sin once again and you are on your hands and knees and your knees are skinned and your palms are cut up from the fall and you look up with tears in your eyes, can't believing that you fell into the same sin yet again and you look up and you see the rushing of God's grace into your life, covering you, running down your chin, getting your shirt wet and you say, His grace is sufficient. And you get up, not in your shame or in your guilt, but re-energized and refreshed immediately by His grace. 
Oh, this is the abundant, overflowing, enriching grace of God in Christ. Secondly, in Christ, condemnation loses. Check this out, verse 16. He says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In Adam, you are left in your shame and in your condemnation. But the free gift is different. What this is telling us is that grace is more powerful than evil. There is no condemnation that can reverse God's grace. Oh yes, grace can snatch you from the clutch of condemnation, but condemnation can never snatch you from the clutch of grace. And this even changes the way that we're able to receive criticism. Not long ago, I realized that one of, one of our members uh, who, who became a believer about a year ago is able to receive constructive criticism in a way that he previously was not. Previously, constructive criticism would cause him to pull into his shell and to just hide and to cover up. Why? Because of shame and guilt, condemnation. Even constructive criticism brought condemnation. But in Christ, what I've seen is growth to where this individual can now hear constructive criticism and keep his head up and keep his chin high and know that there is no condemnation in Christ. You see the difference? But not only that, when we stand before God and the accuser, Satan is called the accuser, the accuser comes along and says, oh, but don't you remember all of these things you've done? How can you boldly approach the throne of God? Oh, we look at the devil and we say, well, grace snatched me from the clutch of condemnation. And your condemnation can never snatch me from the clutches of God's grace. That's how powerful it is, church. Number three, third contrast, the believer reigns. The believer reigns. Look at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, there's that word, those two words, through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? In Christ, death no longer reigns, but we reign. We reign. You might say, well, how do you say that? I would say, well, didn't you just hear it in the text? Look at the text in verse 17. He says, he says those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift, those people reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. 
We are called, listen, not just to be forgiven of our sins, but to reign. To once again exercise, exercise dominion over this world, over our flesh, over our desires. To have restored dignity in this world. To see our royalty renewed. Ray Ortland puts it like this. He says it's restored royalty. What we have in Christ is a new calling to become royal ambassadors to this broken world. We reign with Christ. Even now, we are reigning with Christ. And one day, we will reign with Christ. To be owned by sin, however, is to be reigned by sin. It's to be controlled by the flesh. To be controlled by the things of the world, the desires of the world. Or to be owned by death, for death to reign in our life is ultimately to fear death, to fear all of the decay that comes with being in a world that is dying, to live with endless frustration because we can never live enough, because life is never as life-giving as we want it to be. But we are not owned by death. And so it's very different for us. If you are not owned by death, it means you do not fear death. It means that you will not be overcome by the discouragement of a decaying world. Look, church, we are not like those who lose their top every time something goes wrong. Why? It's because ultimately everything is going right for us. Yes, I understand that the pain of hunger and the pain of loss, and there are pains and sorrows that we go through, but we go through them with a real hope. Therefore, nothing can steal our joy. Meaning, meaning as, as, as hard as life can get, as you grow older, as you grow frail, as you go through tough times, as you approach even your own death, we reign in this life. Meaning through all of that and through the end, we can look at death and say, I see you. But no longer am owned by you. Nothing can keep me down. Nothing can finally discourage me. Nothing can forever make me sad. You are conquered death. I'm no longer in Adam, but I am a recipient of God's grace. And when I meet you, death, I will simply pass right by. Are you in Christ? In Christ, we reign. Fourth comparison. In Christ, we have life. We have life. Verse 18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One act of righteousness leads to life. Now, clearly, he's referring to what act of righteousness? 
the obedience of Christ to go to the cross and to die for the sins of humanity. And by that, he also means the whole of the gospel, his, his sufficient life, his perfections, his vicarious death, and his resurrection in our place. Jesus' one act of obedience brought life to all. Adam's one act brought death to all. And he's simply saying, if that's true, how much more so does this better representative bring us life? And verse 21 calls this eternal life, meaning not just simply a better life now, but life forever with God. I want you to know how much our understanding of the world and the Bible, theology and God and life ought to be wrapped up with our future hope of glory. Like, I love, I really love this life. I really do. I'm not saying that I never have problems, challenges. You know, yesterday, digging dirt, really thirsty, not feeling life in that moment, all right? And then I take a drink of water, and I'm like, man, I love this life. Like, I love cool water when I'm thirsty. I love coffee in the morning. I love the sunrise and the sunset. I love walking onto my, my, my steps in the morning and just interacting with my neighbor. I love life. I love opportunities to, to spend with my wife. I love seeing my kids grow and mature. I even love it when my four-year-old has ice cream all over his face, and I say, did you eat ice cream? And he says, no. Like, life is wonderful. I love the, the excitements of the summer and the, the cool of the fall and the cold of winter and the change of pace to life that all of these seasons bring, the excitement of spring. Like, life really is wonderful. And I can understand why billionaires want to invest in living a couple more years because every bit of it is a blessing to us. It's a grace of God to us. There are hundreds of joys every single day that are available to us because of God's common grace in this world. And we ought to love every bit of it. And I, I think it's for that reason that I love the idea of eternal life even more. Meaning, eternal life with God is like this life, but so much better. It's more weighty. It's more real. It's more joyful. Everything in this life which causes pain and tears and suffering no longer exists in eternal life. And it is joy and bliss forever with God and God's restored humanity ruling and reigning in the way that we are wired to reign. Here we are told that we have in Christ life. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. Amen? Fifthly, 
And lastly, in Christ we are righteous. Final contrast in verse 19. He says, for as many, or, or, or as, as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here we are told that we go from Adam to Christ, sinners to righteous. Now in many ways, as Christians, we still look like sinners. We still are in this flesh, and we will be until that glorious day we are given new bodies, freed from even the presence of sin. But what we're told is that our true self in Christ is that of righteousness. And we look forward to that, one, that day, once again, one day when we will have complete happiness in our righteousness. The sorrow of sin decisively defeated forever. Verse 21 summarizes how death is defeated. It says, so that what sin reigned, while sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Five times, church, we're told that one sin led to death for all. Five times we are given comparisons between the two representatives, Adam and Jesus. And five times we are told that there is a free gift for all who trust in him, and that is to be represented by Jesus Christ. Are you represented by Christ? Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? You must be represented by Christ. He is the only representative that can lead us to all of this abundant flourishing in life and forgiveness and righteousness. Well, how? How might we be represented by him? It is a reception, we're told. Those who receive it. Do you now receive Christ as your representative? Oh, what a representative he is. Listen, for those of us in Christ, in him, grace triumphs. Believers reign, condemnation loses, we have life, and we are righteous. In the ancient world, a great king would make a co covenant with a, a lesser king. A great king would come into a new territory, and the king that represented that ter territory, he would come down and he'd sit down and they'd write up a treaty, a contract, a covenant. And in that covenant, there would be stipulations. You must do this, you must do that, you honor the king, obey, da 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 And if you do this, there will be all of these blessings, we will protect you, we will care for you, and if you, the king, representative of the people, rebel against the great king, not only will you die, but all of the people you represent will die. You know that the great king made a covenant with the first king? Adam, who was, was the representative king for all of humanity. And in that covenant, there were blessings and there were curses. And our representative king rebelled. And as a result, we are all under the curse of death. We are born in Adam. But here's the beautiful thing, is we don't have to remain in Adam. 
we can look to a new king that was born. You know, it's, uh, let's say Christmas in July. Uh, we should have sung Hark the Herald Angels Sing today. You know the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Glory to the newborn king. We have a new king that's been born. A new representative for the people who represents us well before the great king. That song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it goes on and it says, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn King. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us a humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. That means mess it up. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam, from above. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. In Adam all die. But in Christ all are made alive. All are born in Adam. And we can't do anything about that. But we don't have to stay there. Receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the free gift of righteousness, this abundance of grace in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that there would be nobody in this room that walks out of here clinging to their own man-made cups, drinking their own filthy waters of good works and self-righteousness, but rather we will drink from the endless, abundant spring of your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.